0: In October of 1943, the U.S. Navy supposedly conducted an experiment like none other. The goal? Create cloaking abilities using specific magnetic fields. The outcome? Dismemberment. Disappearances. Death. For 80 years, the Navy has hidden the true story of the intense evolution, and today we dive deep into the history of the Philadelphia Navy Yard. Naval Station Norfolk, the disappearances and reappearances of an entire U.S. Naval ship, and what actually happened to those involved. Are the reports that members of the ship's crew met and spoke with beings from another dimension real? What about those that reappeared with the ship at the piers of Naval Station Norfolk, reportedly emerged fused with the bulkhead's deck and instruments of said ship? What about the ones who died as a result? What about those that were separated from the service with a permanent, full disability from, quote-unquote, mental disorders for life? And what about the multitude of reports describing a cover-up on a level never before seen? Welcome to the Destroyer Escort-class ship DE-173, the USS Eldridge. And today, we dive into the infamous Philadelphia Experiment. Welcome back to Infinite Rabbit Hole. Welcome back to the Infinite Rabbit Hole, everybody. I'm your host, Jeremy, and tonight we're going to dive deep into the infamous Philadelphia experiment. But before we do that, I would like to give a couple shout outs. First, being to my old co host, Jeff. So, oh, Jeffrey, you may have noticed that the intro music is a little new and a little badass. You can thank Jeff for that since he is the one who created it under his stage name, Timeslip 84. Definitely check out all the work under Timeslip84 for his electronic music and Wise the Sleeper for his metal stuff. Dude's killing it. Second, I need to give a shout out to Kellyanne. Kellyanne reached out in April of 2022 with a request to do the Philadelphia Experiment. And well, here we are 14 months later, finally stepping up to the plate. (laughs) I'm sorry for the extremely long wait, but I hope I was able to put something together that will blow your mind. With all that being said, Make sure to come back in two weeks when I drop part two of my coverage on the Philadelphia Experiment. Trust me, that episode is nuts. And after listening to this episode, go check out the other episode I dropped on the same day as this one. That's right, two episodes in one day. The other episode is titled, The Philadelphia Experiment Part 0.5, Supporting Documents. And in that episode, I'll be reading all the documents referred to in this episode, word for word, so that you can know exactly what they say in all of the context. All right, all right. That's that's enough, travelers. Time to jump into the Philadelphia experiment. Enjoy. Dr. Morris Ketchum Jessup. Dr. Morris Ketchum Jessup was born in Rockville, Indiana, on March 20th, 1990. At the age of 17, Jessup graduated high school and almost simultaneously enlisted in the U.S. Army to assist in the efforts of World War I. After his enlistment, Jessup began his true calling by majoring in both astronomy and mathematics at Drake University and at the University of Michigan. It was during this time that Jessup would travel to South Africa and discover a wide range of double star solar systems, which eventually propelled him into yet another field of academics astrophysics. During the years of the Great Depression, Jessup took up odd jobs for an astronomer. He traveled to Brazil to study portions of the Amazon organized intense studies of the lost Mayan ruins in Central America, and explored the Inca and pre-Inca ruins in Peru. It was during these explorations that Joseph became one of the first scientists to step forward with the now infamous ancient astronaut theory. He believed that the massive blocks carved from gigantic stone had to have been moved from their quarried location to the ruins by way of flying ships with levitation capabilities. Such topics being taboo for the mainstream science scene were not such for Jessup, as he used these theories to propel himself into the world of ufology, eventually writing a book titled The Case for the UFO. Jessup not only believed that the UFO phenomenon may be tied to the true origins of Central and South American ancient ruins, but also that we may be forever trapped within the realm of the Earth's physical plane. He believed that to truly escape Earth, we would have to forget brutish rocket power and delve into more eccentric practices to gain access to the realms in which these mysterious craft derive from. Jessup believed that the key to this type of study would be the use of magnetic and gravitational fields as a source of energy. He believed this so much that he spent a few years of his life traveling to different lecture halls across the country, explaining the concept and asking for support in convincing the US government to look into gravitational studies by using Einstein's unified field theory as a starting point. In the fall of 1955, Jessup received a piece of fan mail in response to his book that stated a return address from New Kensington, Pennsylvania. Beyond the contents of the letter, Jessup noted that the writing was very erratic. Capital letters used in the middle of sentences, different thickness and darkness to specific words or letters, as if the author had changed writing utensils. Certain words or phrases were written in different colors and underlined to show emphasis. But of course the visual abnormalities of the letter were just the beginning. The contents described how not only did the levitation theory of Jessup's Pan true, but up until recently this was a well-known practice to many across the world among a few other things. The letter was signed Carlos Miguel Allende. Dr. Jessup didn't think too much of the letter as he had received plenty similar in the context at various points throughout the years after his first book was published. But a year after receiving the first letter, the author was in the crowd at one of his lectures and soon after while living in Miami, Florida, Jessup received yet another letter from the same person in response to his lecture, but this time it was signed Carl M. Allen, and bore the same return address from New Kensington, Pennsylvania, but was written on a letterhead from the Turner Hotel in Gainesville, Texas, as well as bared a postmark from the same town. Further research found that the address listed in Pennsylvania that was used as the return address did not exist. This now famous first Alande letter, as many have come to call it, was in fact the second letter by the same man. This letter is readily available and can be found on numerous websites if you wish to read it in its entirety. But for now, I will only describe the most pertinent information from the letter as it pertains to today's subject. Look for additional coverage of this subject in part 0.5 also released today for more information. In the letter, Allande describes how Einstein's unified field theory was already complete and successfully tested by various branches of the US military. One particular case he described was the disappearance or cloaking of an entire DE-class naval ship in October of 1943. The description that Alande tells of is how a hundred yards out from all points of the ship outlined the radius in which anything within the confines of the bubble would be invisible to the naked eye of any person. The only giveaway would be the displacement of water in the surface of the ocean equal to the whole of the ship that was cloaked but generally the description that was given during his letter highlighted how the men that were aboard this ship and other trials afterwards could and would become visible randomly post-trial and that the Navy failed to predict such an issue occurring. Some specific issues he noted were episodes of men walking and vanishing into nothing, descriptions of how some were not just seemingly gone, they were gone, psychological issues and those that would disappear and those that had to watch their friends fade away and even greater issues being from the experience of having to support a shipmate after reappearing from parts unknown. Reports of confused men walking directly through walls or other obstacles in front of their wives, family members, friends, or other sailors never being seen again. Lande continued by describing how the tests included an aspect that was not expected by most in the ship. As the ship momentarily disappeared, it reappeared outside of the piers at Naval Station Norfolk in Virginia, before reappearing at its spot next to the pier in the Philadelphia Navy Yard. Aside from the point of view of Jessup and Allende, I would like to point out that this highlights that there was intent not only to disappear, but to transport as well. I say this because if this transportation episode was an accident, that ship could have shown up absolutely anywhere. But it showed up in the waters just outside of the largest naval base in the world, in Norfolk, Virginia. The simple random task of disappearing and reappearing to and from one naval property to another would be astronomically unlikely, but if it was planned, it wouldn't only be possible, but it would be probable. Sorry, just a little tidbit that I wanted to to share with you guys there. Uh, The contents of this letter really opened up the possibility of this all being true to Jessa. But at the same time, he kept in mind that this very topic tends to attract those that have creative minds and crackpot mentalities, so he proceeded with caution. In Vincent Gaddis's book, Invisible Horizons, which was published in 1964, shortly after Jessup received this letter, Gaddis describes how Jessup really believed that this letter held some truth. He felt that a lot, if not most of the letter was exaggerated, but due to the number of specific details included, there had to be some truth to Alande's account. It is no secret that there were plenty of highly classified and strange testings going on during the years of World War II from both America and Germany. The time frame was right for such a test, and the probable cause was correct too. Immediately Jessup responded to the letter and requested as much evidence that Alande could prove of his claims. Five months later, Jessup got a reply in the form of what is commonly referred to the second Alande letter even though it was technically the third. This letter is also easily found if you would like to read it in its entirety, or yet again, go ahead and give part 0.5 a listen. The Navy. Before I begin, I want to highlight, like many others before me, that this part of the story has been interpreted by others in different ways. I like to receive my information from as close to first-hand sources as I possibly can, so those sources are who I chose to follow for this part of the presentation. I can guarantee that if you look into the topic yourself, listen to other podcast adaptions of the story, read articles, or watch documentaries on the subject, chances are that you will be given different information in varying degrees. This part of the story takes place in either July or August of 1955, a few years before Jessup received the first letter from Alambe. It all starts with a manila folder that was delivered to the office of the Chief of Naval Research, Admiral N. Firth, with correspondence of Major Daryl L. Ritter of the Marine Corps, also at the Office of Naval Research. And all that was written on the front of the folder were the words, Happy Easter. Inside the folder was a paperback copy of Jessup's book, The Case for the UFO. And inside the book were an incredible number of statements circled, paragraphs emphasized, and notes written in different utensils, colors, and boldness. Sound familiar? Either way, Admiral Firth has no history of ever acknowledging the book, but Major Ritter, on the other hand, is recorded to have read through, with particular attention to the handwritten notes in the margins, with words such as Mothership, Great War, Little Men, Deep Freeze, Scout Ships, Magnetic Fields, Nodes, and Vortices. A few months later, Major Ritter handed the book over to Commander George W. Hoover and Captain Sidney Sherby, the lead officers in the Office of Naval Research's Special Project Department. Sherby and Hoover were heading the Naval's Project Vanguard, which planned the first wave of Earth-orbiting satellites. These two men were so interested that after they had dissected the book and all the notes handwritten in the margins, they personally reached out to Dr. Jessup to invite him to the Office of Naval Research to discuss the contents of his book in 1957, a few months after the last of the Allende letters. Upon Jessup's arrival, he was handed the worn copy of his own book with all the markings left, by what the naval officers assumed were three separate people. Dr. Jessup didn't recognize two of the handwritings, but one stood out like a sore thumb. He quickly replied that one of the men who wrote in this book was a man that has written three letters to him personally and goes by the name of Carlos Miguel Allende. In a few of the notations made in the book, the reference that Jessup had become familiar with of the disappearing ship was mentioned in detail, and he was sure that the officer's interest included deeper knowledge of this event. After Jessup identified Allande, the officers thanked him, told him that they were going to reproduce this book with the two letters that Jessup still had included as well as all of the notations. Why they did this is uncertain, but it did happen. The quote-unquote Varro edition of Jessup's book was in fact published with the letters in their entirety with all of the notations just as they were when Hoover and Sherby received them from Major Ritter. This is 100% factual as I own this copy of the book myself, albeit not the original version of this reprinted book in which it is said that there were only 25 made, but the introduction of the book, which includes the Allende letters, is completed with a word from both Commander George W. Hoover and... Captain Sidney Sherby. Shortly after receiving his own copy of the reprinted book, Jessup became obsessed with the matter of dissecting the notations made within the publication. A close friend, a Mr. Ivan T. Sanderson, who we have mentioned in many other episodes, such as our coverage of the Minnesota Iceman, claimed that Jessup had written his own response to each notation in the book and became extremely scared in more ways than one. He became afraid for his own life, scared of what might happen to his family if certain things that he was involved in were to get out into the public, and passed away shortly at the very intense meeting about his copy of the book with Sanderson and two other men. He was involved in a serious car accident near his home in Coral Gable, Florida, and after a few months of deepening depression and outreach to multiple sources with concern for his own life, Dr. Morris Ketchup Jessup, was found barely breathing in his car from apparently attempting to take his own life by way of carbon monoxide poisoning. A hose was attached to his tailpipe with a wire and snaked into the back window of his car. Friends, family, and close correspondences within the UFO community believe that he did not do this to himself. Unfortunately, exactly a month after his 59th birthday, Dr. Jessup passed away from the complications he sustained from this incident. Until his death in 1959, Jessup entrusted Ivan Sanderson with the only copy ever made of the Varro edition of his book with his own notations to notes with written by unknown authors. Although many people were aware of this book's existence by way of both Jessup and Sanderson, the location of this most sought-after version of the book has never been found, and the location will remain a secret because knowledge of its location was buried with Sanderson after his death in 1973. The Alonde letters. In William L. Moore's book, *The Philadelphia Experiment: Project Invisibility*, there is a really great breakdown of the Alonde letters and what the context of these letters actually mean. Now, I'm not going to read word for word what Moore included in his book, as I do not want to take away from his work. But I will go over main points briefly to help clarify what the actual contents of these letters were. Moore breaks down the two latter letters into ten main points, and remember, this is all only according to Carlos Alonde. the truth behind these letters is up to interpretation. 1. Albert Einstein's Unified Field Theory is true and complete, and was actively used in the cloaking and or disappearance of the USS Eldridge. For those who may not be familiar with the Unified Field Theory, The most basic way to describe it is as the goal of taking all different and separate parts of physics and connecting them coherently all into a set of equations that explain all aspects of the universe, essentially creating the exact known and understanding framework of the nature of physics. How does this apply to the Philadelphia Experiment? Well, in a nutshell, it means that all the fancy physics that were used in conducting the task of cloaking or teleporting the eldritch was perfect and known, and that there was no question as to whether it would work. 2. Aspects of the Unified Field Theory were successfully tested and used by the Navy in World War II. 3. Allande describes that the tests were a success for Test 6, but not for the sailors. The entire ship disappeared by way of cloaking, and all of the members on board of the ship would could vaguely see each other, but from a standpoint outside of the field, the ship was completely invisible, except for the displaced water and the shape of the ship's hull. The effects of the invisibility force field were disastrous to the crew. 4. There was a special place at a specific pier in the Philadelphia Naval Yard, where the Eldridge was during the experiment. 5. There was a small article in the Philadelphia area newspaper that described a raid on a local bar that included sailors from the nearby yard that either exhibited aspects of invisibility or became invisible before raiding the establishment. Yet again, go listen to Part 0.5 for the contents on this article. 6. Alonde claims to have witnessed one of these trials in October of 1943 while at sea on board the Matson Line ship, the SS Andrew Furseff. He claimed to be accompanied by specific men by the names of Chief Mate Mosley, Richard Price, and an 18 year old sailor from Roanoke, Virginia, and yet another one from New England. Unnamed, of course. Alande claims that Rear Admiral Rawson Bennett, then Navy Chief of Research, could verify everything claimed by Alande. 8. At one point, the letters describe the teleportation event that saw the elders disappear from docks in Philadelphia appear at a dock in Norfolk, Virginia, and then reappear at its dock in Philadelphia in a matter of minutes. Alande claims to not have witnessed this particular event, but does describe it as happening years after in 1946, not in the famously known year of 1943. 9. Allande describes a man by the name of Burke being the true driver behind the experiment and describes him as a man who, quote, possessed a very positive attitude toward research, end quote. I would like to add that anybody who has served in the Navy, such as myself and my, co-hosts, my past co-hosts Jake and Wes, we have all heard the name Arleigh Burke. Sailors commonly know this name due to the Arleigh Burke-class destroyer ships, aka DDGs, that are in commission today. Could the actual Admiral Arlie Burke, who served from 1923 to 1961, be the man referred to in these letters? Well, the timeline is right. 10. Lastly, Moore points out that in one of his letters to Jessup, Allande signed his name with his Merchant Marine Identification Number, Z416175. While researching this specific ID number written by Alonde in his letter to Jessup, I found an official certificate of Siemens' service record issued by the Treasury Department of the U.S. Coast Guard for a man by the name of Carl Meredith Allen with service on the SS Andrew from October 14, 1943 to January 1, 1944, among many other assignments. This was very easy to find, and I will be including a copy of the certificate in a post on the Infinite Rabbit Hole Facebook group if you are interested in seeing it. Carlos Miguel Alande Who is the infamous Carlos Miguel Alande? Through the years, there have been numerous people who have stepped forward, claiming to be the real Alande, and were willing to tell the story, if the price is right. (laughs) Yeah, no. But in 1969, Jim Lorenzen of the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, or APRO, published an article in the APRO journal about Londe after a man claiming to be Alande reached out to the organization with what he referred to as quote-unquote confessions. Lorenzen interviewed the man and never thought too much about it until he received a letter with some strange and familiar traits which referred to their past interview and in which was signed Carlos Miguel Alande. The author of the book, The Philadelphia Experiment, Project Invisibility, William L. Moore was already in contact with Lorenzen about another topic when the subject of Volante's letter to the organization was brought up. Moore had already had a small interest in the subject of the Philadelphia Experiment due to his research for his book on the Bermuda Triangle and how the technology used in the cloaking of the Eldritch may have something to do with a similar natural phenomena causing issues in the Bermuda Triangle, so he took it in stride and followed the fresh lead. And would you believe it, contact with Alonde was finally made. So how do we know that this is the real Carlos Miguel Alonde? Well, he was able to prove a postcard that would prove without a shadow of a doubt that this is the man they have all been looking for. The postcard that he presented was none other than the response to the first Alonde letter, quote-unquote, written in ink and signed by Dr. M.K. Jessup in Jessup's handwriting. William Moore had actually found Alande. Carl Allen was born the youngest of three children in May 31, 1925 in a small town in Pennsylvania. Carl had dropped out of school in the ninth grade and was self-described as a moody and restless young man. Shortly after his 17th birthday, Carl had enlisted in the US Marine Corps. His enlistment was short. He was medically discharged after only 10 months in the service. In July of the same year, he had enlisted in the Merchant Marines and was shipped off the Seaman School in Hoffman Island, New York. His very first assignment was as an ordinary seaman, an acting capable seaman, on board the SS Andrew Furosef, which was due to sail from Norfolk, Virginia to Casablanca, North Africa. The time frame of this trip is well documented in Merchant Marine records as taking place from August 16, 1943 to January 18, 1944. This places him in the right place and at the right time as the supposed cloaking experiment that he supposedly witnessed. Carl Allen continued his service as a merchant marine until October of 1952. After his time at sea, he had spent a considerable amount of time traveling for work during the time period of the Happy Easter Folder that was sent to the Office of Naval Research. He was able to prove that he was indeed in Gainesville, Texas working at a well digging facility which proved that he was in the right place at the right time yet again. He was also able to prove that he was in Seminole, Texas when Jessup had received the quote unquote second Allende letter. Soon after the Navy became interested in him due to the infamous Happy Easter Folder He went into hiding in the Los Altos region of Mexico, where the moniker that he famously used of Carlos Miguel Allende would blend right into the area. I would like to add that if you are looking for further research into the identity of Carl Allen, I highly recommend reading William L. Moore's book, The Philadelphia Experiment Project Invincibility, specifically Chapter 5 where he makes an uncanny connection between Carl Allen and a man by the name of Philo Alonde from Pennsylvania. Absolutely mind-blowing and creates another layer to this man's story that helps the timing of the famous Alonde letters make more sense. I unfortunately have to choose to keep this part out of the presentation due mostly to time restraints, but I also decided to cut this particular part out because no matter who Alonde actually was, The truth is that there are a plethora of records from many very credible sources that follow the timeline that Carl Allen provides. Some of these sources are the U.S. Marine Corps, U.S. Merchant Marines, Postal Records, a certificate issued by the U.S. Department of Commerce, which proves the issuance of his book number, photographic evidence of his time in Texas, time on board various ships, training and documents proving residents of various towns in multiple states, Throughout his life. So now that Alande was found, what else did he say about this supposed cloaked ship? In a personal response to a few different sources, Alande expanded on a few different points of info about his knowledge on the subject. He claimed that Albert Einstein himself was there to witness the experiment. Note, I have heard many accounts from other podcasts and documentaries that claim that this is impossible as Einstein was already dead at the time of cloaking of the Eldridge. But according to a simple Google search, Einstein was born on March 14th, 1879 and passed away April 18th, 1955, 12 years after the experiment supposedly took place. But even if that was the case, how many conspiracies are out there that ignore these quote-unquote facts around deaths of important characters and conspiracies in question? The common explanation from dissectors of these topics is that the government has created deaths of important people in order to allow them to conduct whatever it is that they secretly need to conduct. I know these are you know, off-topic examples, but for example, there are many who believe that Elvis, Michael Jackson, Hitler, and Kurt Cobain are all still alive. Why would that not apply here? Just my thoughts. Sorry for the sidetrack. Alante claimed to have stuck his arm into the force field surrounding the Eldridge during the experiment that he did witness while out at sea, as well as explained that there was a strange green mist present and that the force field seemed to be warping space around where the ship should have been in a clockwise manner that occasionally showed electrical pulses. When he had his arm in the force field, he felt physical pushing pressure on his arm. The sounds that he described were a hum that eventually faded into a loud buzz. When all interviews and contact were complete from all sources with the real Allande, there were a few things that stood out of note. One, he did recognize that he did slightly exaggerate the effects the trial had on physical bodies of the sailors involved. He claimed to have done this to dissuade Jessup from convincing the government to continue its research into the unified field theory as he believed that it was incredibly dangerous. And two, he claims that everything else he reported was true and he had stuck with it all the way to his death. Drama there are many different people with their hands in the pot with this topic, and for a while there, it seemed that many of those people went to legal war with each other over what was and wasn't published by certain people. A few notable books, some of which I used in my own research, are The Philadelphia Experiment Project Invisibility by William L. Moore, The Alonde Letters, New UFO Breakthrough by Brad Steiger and others, The Strange Case of Dr. M.K. Jessup by Greg Barker, Invisible Horizons by Vincent Gaddis, and Uninvited Visitors by Ivan T. Sanderson. Not all of these books were solely on the topic of the Philadelphia Experiment, but all of them made mention of the Allende letters and the cloaking of the USS Eldridge. I personally read most of these books that I list, except for the Invisible Horizons book. But why am I giving references in the middle of my presentation? Well, yet again, this next part is told completely differently by most accounts, so it was very difficult to put together, but I did the best I could. Unfortunately, there was a point in the Allende letter saga that Carl Allen got really pissed off due to everyone arguing and making a ton of money off of his letters and notes in Jessup's book that he marched right into the headquarters of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization in Tucson, Arizona and claimed that everything was a lie. The letters he wrote to Jessup were a hoax. The notes in the margins of Jessup's book were planted to discredit Jessup to the Navy, He claimed that at the time he feared technology dealing with cloaking, hovering, teleportation and fringe physics of all kinds, and he wanted Jessup to stop giving lectures on such topics in reference to his beliefs in the ancient astronaut theory. Yes, unfortunately this is true, but was everything he said real? Well he did have a private interview with the before mentioned Jim Lorenzen of the APRO, but Lorenzen claimed that in a private conversation off record, Allen admitted to only stating these things only to discredit everyone else's books. He was very upset that everyone was making money off of him, but he was struggling to get by in his everyday life. So what is the truth? Was Carl Allen really lying in his letters? Did the famous experiment ever actually take place? Is everyone that now knows the Alondi letters to be fake actually wrong? Could they be real? There are three possible outcomes to this, and as there are with almost everything within the realm of Fortean topics. One, it was all a hoax. If this is true, then look no further. Your mind's made up, and you might even turn off this episode right now and go along with your day. Two, it is all real, which means that there is much more to be researched in order to prove its authenticity. And three, some parts are real, and some parts are exaggerated or fake this is the realm I personally like to be in for my beloved topics this is the part that requires us to dig deep into the rabbit hole not only to prove what is real but what is false or exaggerated if you align with options two or three then let me tell you about a man by the name of dr. J Manson Valentine dr. J Manson Valentine in the time of Jessup's life that he lived in Florida. He befriended an oceanographer, zoologist, and archeologist by the name of Dr. J. Manson Valentine. Valentine was included in a lot of Jessup's true thoughts about the cloaking naval ship and the Olande letters. On the day of Jessup's death, Valentine had invited Jessup over for dinner, but Jessup never showed. Unfortunately, he would learn of his apparent suicide, but he never really truly believed that suicide was the case. Valentine claims that Jessup was incredibly depressed because of a moral decision he had made. According to Valentine, Jessup was offered a job by the Department of the Navy to help further the research into similar subjects in comparison to the cloaking of the Eldridge. Jessup had turned down the offer due to his concern about the ramifications reported to him from Alande in his letters about the effects on the people involved. Valentine is famously quoted in response to his feeling on his good friend's death. Quote, perhaps he could have been saved. He was still alive when he was found. Perhaps he was allowed to die. Valentine continued explaining that his friend was not a crank. He was a very distinguished scientist in many reputable fields. More than just having Dr. Jessup's back, Dr. Valentine also gave a lot of really good insight into the details that Jessup has uncovered about the experiment itself. Apparently, the cloaking experiment was made possible by way of using large magnetic generators called degaussers. The degaussers pulsed at specific frequencies to create powerful, neutralizing magnetic fields on and around the ship. The process of degaussing is a well-known process that eliminates any unwanted magnetic field that the Navy uses in order to not attract what is referred to as a limpet mine as well as others that detonate when a magnetic field is applied to its own magnetic field. Valentine claimed that Jessup was very involved in meetings with the naval personnel in which they discussed concepts of temporary obliteration and reiteration of matter within our own dimension. Jessup described the concept as a temporary transfer of matter into another dimension, and actually was very impressed by the implications if it could ever become controllable, and that just prior to his death, Jessup believed that he was close to discovering the scientific truth behind the technology. Valentine claimed that whatever it was that Jessup believed he had, he believed it was tied strongly to Einstein's theory. In fact, the topic that the men planned on discussing at dinner the night of Jessup's death was what Jessup described as his conclusive findings on the entire story. Before we sign off on Dr. Valentine's chapter of this presentation, I want to give you an observation of mine. The information of Dr. Valentine's statements regarding his friend Dr. Jessup aligned very closely with the information in the Allende letters. In fact, they seemed to build upon the information in the letters which lends to believe that Jessup did have some contact with the Navy about his cloaking technology and maybe there was some truth in the infamous letters. History On February 22, 1943, the USS Eldridge was officially under construction as it was registered to have quote-unquote laid down on this date in the federal shipbuilding dry docks in Newark, New Jersey. The term laid down refers to the laying of a ship's keel and is the formal start of a ship's construction. Its official launch date was July 25, 1943, just slightly over five months after beginning construction and the official commissioning ceremony was held on August 27th of the same year. Wasting zero time, in September it had received its first orders. It was to contribute to an escort detail in Bermuda and the British West Indies until the mission was over in December 28, 1943. Note, this was the exact time frame in which the Elders was supposedly conducting cloaking trials according to Allende, but to continue the timeline of the Elders' life due to many believing that the ship was scrapped while under the control of the US Navy. That is in fact false. The Eldridge continued its brief service in the U.S. Navy until June 17, 1946 and sat idle for nearly five years before being given to the Greek Navy under the Mutual Defense Assistance Program on January 15, 1951. The ship was rebranded as D-54 Leon, Greek for Lion, where it continued service until November 15, 1992. After its service for Greece, it was then officially sold off to Scrap on November 11th of 99 in the Piraeus-based company V&J Scrap Metal Trading LTD. The reason why I included that is because one of the big arguments against the Philadelphia Experiment was that the ship was scrapped before anybody could study it, but that is false. Due to it being intact, until 1999, it stands that there was plenty of time for someone to research the ship during the heyday of its popularity in the 60s and beyond. Now what about the SS Furaseth, the ship that Alande apparently served on while in the Merchant Marines when he witnessed the cloaking of the Eldritch? The ship was launched in October 1942 with 491 as its designated hull number from the Permanente Metals Division of Kayser Industries in Richmond, California. Shortly after, the ship was released to the Matson Navigation Company in San Francisco before it deployed on a five-month tour that brought it right into the war zone of the Pacific before receiving orders in March of 1943 to transfer over to the Atlantic in order to assist in supply runs to North Africa. After a few back and forth trips between New York or Norfolk, Virginia to various parts of North Africa, it was on August 13, 1943 when the ships stopped in the Newport News shipyards to unload supplies and personnel. One such new member was a young man by the name Carl M. Allen, a.k.a. Alande. On October 25th, 1943, it set sail for Oran, Algeria. In his book, William L. Moore expands into research of this incredible coincidence, and after filling requests with proper entities, it was shocking to find that the logbooks of the Eldridge were unfortunately missing during the timeframe of its commissioning to December 1st, 1943, and the logbooks for the Furuseth were destroyed by executive order and no longer exist. But eventually, something did surface. The Eldridge's engineer log, which gave specific locations by the degree in which it was during the time frame of late October to mid-November, and according to this log, the Eldridge's mission was to gather stragglers of convoy GUS-22 who were sent off course from a seasonally late hurricane. Want to take a guess what ship was recorded as being part of the GUS-22 convoy? That's right, the first Which was carrying none other than Carl Allen. Better yet, other records from other ships in the convoy match records from the Eldridge's engineer log stating that they were all in the same area at the same time off the coast of Casablanca, North Africa on November 20th of 1943. It was at this time that both ships were in the vicinity of each other in the open Atlantic for a stretch of weeks from Bermuda to North Africa. The timeline adds up and from what Alande said in his letter, the one time he witnessed the cloaking of the elders was not in the dock. It was in the open ocean. <laughs> now, side note. Actually, question. Is it a coincidence that this took place around Bermuda? <laughs> I'm going to have to leave that one alone for now. But with all of that said, there was one other really eye-opening piece of information that seems to be important. When the Greek Navy received the ship, it weighed approximately 660 tons of less than what it was in records of the US Navy and displaced an appropriate amount of water proportionate to the 660 tons of lost weight. You may be saying, so what does this mean? Well think of it this way, 660 tons is equal to 1,320,000 pounds, that's a lot of weight and the only way to gain 660 tons of buoyancy is to remove 660 tons of weight. Could this be because whatever was on board the Eldridge was used for this cloaking was removed? Remember, it was mentioned that what was used were massive degaussing magnetic field generators, which, if you could imagine, such a thing would be pretty darn heavy. Origins While we are on the topic of history, I feel it is important to briefly discuss possible origins of how the experiment could have come to be that don't necessarily match the standard storyline. Joseph Dunninger, a proclaimed magician and mind reader who was also incredibly popular in mainstream pop culture in the time period, had been mentioned in an article on page 5 of the New York Times from August 31, 1940, which he described knowledge of the truth behind a similar situation involving British bomber planes. The Germans apparently were spreading word that the invisible bombers were due to a particular varnish that Britain had discovered and began applying to its warplanes, but Dunninger again, a magician, claimed that it was no varnish, but rather an apparatus created by a man by the name of Horace Golden. As a very brief backstory of Horace, he was a British magician who was internationally famous for his illusions. Specifically, his take on the incredibly popular sawing a woman in half illusion. Dunninger claimed that he too had developed a similar technology in the U.S. and had successfully made a model warship disappear and had done so in the presence of the Department of the Navy in Washington, D.C. He then went on to claim that he had the ability to upscale his apparatus so that it could make an entire full-size operational warship disappear. The claim of his article created a media storm, and although reluctant to do so, Dunninger set up a demonstration at the Ruxton Hotel in Washington, D.C., in which he joked that fitting an entire warship into the room was impossible. However, he did provide a painting of a warship as a subject for the demonstration instead. And in front of a room full of reporters and military brass, he seemingly successfully removed the painting from existence. This is easily verifiable, by the way. The next day, the newspapers and radio shows were all talking about this incredible stunt that Dunninger had conducted. But most important to this topic is that Joseph Dunninger received a hand-delivered letter from the Department of the Navy announcing interest in his technology, and much more through demonstration for certain individuals within the top tiers of Navy ranks. Dunninger failed to reply, and the Navy sent two officers to his personal home to discuss the exhibit. Immediately after, he would come out publicly and claim that the entire stunt had been a hoax and that he simply created a very well-thought-out trick of the eye. Well, this all changed on December seventh, 1941, when the Japanese military launched a full-on attack on naval base Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Joseph Dunninger apparently wrote back to the return address on the original letter from the Department of the Navy and described the entire process of the disappearing picture. A few days later, the Navy picked him up, brought him to DC and forced him to sign a non-disclosure agreement. What Dunninger actually submitted to the Department of the Navy was and in most likely will always be unknown, but the events of Joseph Dunninger and the disappearing picture is a not so well known possibility as the origin point for the Philadelphia Experiment. Side Effects one of the most eye-opening aspects of the entire supposed events of the Philadelphia Experiment is the gruesome physical and mental side effects of those involved. A lot of people immediately hear of these side effects and will discount the story. I mean, who could believe that a ship could disappear in the first place, let alone when it reappears? Members of his crew were disfigured, dismembered, or even integrated into the actual matter of the ship and its equipment as if man and material were one. Another aspect of this was that those that did survive were completely unable to live normal lives due to seemingly issues of psychosis. But in 1976, a top-secret report dealing with the Soviet studies on the side effects of high-frequency electromagnetic forces on the human body was released. Among the contents of this report, there were entire pages dedicated to the incredible amount of changes to the brain function and bodily chemistry of the subjects of the reported trials. Specific side effects that were noted were disorientation, disrupting behaviors, severe neurological and cardiovascular disturbances, forgetfulness, inability to concentrate, anxiety, depression, and dizziness. The one difference between the subjects of the Soviet report and those that were a part of the Philadelphia experiment is that the Soviet tests were done using low-intensity electromagnetic fields, whereas the fields used in the Eldridge were said to be very strong in order to get the required outcome. Of all of the side effects that are commonly talked about, one seems to stand out among the rest and that is the reported vanishing of those involved at random times following the experiment. Some appeared and some never appeared again. One such piece of possible evidence for this is the article that Alande referred to, claiming that there was a group of sailors that completely vanished into a local restaurant and caused distress with the workers and patrons. If you are interested in hearing this article, again, you can listen to it in part 0.5, but unfortunately all that exists in this article is a photocopy that is neither dated nor shows proof as to what newspaper it belonged to. One thing that cannot be argued is that the earliest of crews listed on the roster of active service members attached to the Eldreds, both officer and enlisted, had a highly suspicious amount of members spend a stint at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, all within a reasonable time frame immediately after October 1943. Most were only there for a few days. Some stayed for weeks, a few months, and some never left alive. Dead or Gone Throughout the history of the events from before, during, and after the alleged experiment conducted on the USS Eldridge in late October of 1943, there had been many people who have died or disappeared who were attached to the event in one way or the other. The first of these cases that we discussed in this presentation was the death of Dr. Morris Ketchum Jessup. Jessup was found dead of apparent suicide on the side of the road with a hose attached to his tailpipe, which was funneling the exhaust into the cab of his car. An author by the name of Anna Genslinger published a book called The Jessup Dimension, in which she claimed to have gained access to the Dade County Florida Medical Examiner's records regarding Jessup. In these records, she discovered that Dr. Jess's blood had, quote, been virtually saturated with what would be considered more than a legal amount of alcohol. Also included in his toxology report was a proof that he was also regularly taking his depression and anxiety medications, which during the time frame of his death were extremely dangerous to mix with any alcohol, let alone the amount that was recorded in his blood post-mortem. It was Mrs. Genslinger, who deduced that it was physically impossible for Jessup to have taken his own life due to the simple fact that the toxicology report showed such dangerous levels of alcohol. She claimed that under the undescribed amount, he would have been physically unable to drive, let alone write a letter and attach a hose to his tailpipe, and get back into his car successfully without succumbing to blacking out or death. For a very long time, many have believed for many different reasons that Dr. M.K. Jessup did not take his own life. The common belief is that he was killed because he was uneasy about what he had done while working with the Navy, and their fear that he was going to go public with everything. In May 1945, another ship, aircraft carrier CV-36 USS Antietam, was rumored by its crew to have been the next in line to go under the infamous degaussing that the Eldridge undertook. Just like the Eldridge, the Antietam also was newly commissioned just a few months prior when rumors started making the rounds. Rumors were so heavy about this possibility that then commanding officer Captain Teague had to address it in an impromptu quarters. A few years later, immediately following the end of World War II, then Executive Officer Commander Haywood took his own life in the wardroom of the ship. Many on board the ship at the time claimed that they were silenced when asked about the Exo's death. But some unconfirmed members with collaborative stories claim that the Antietam did in fact undergo testing due to the Navy wanting to test the ability on a larger ship. According to them, the EXO was always different after the trial, and simply couldn't take the confusion and secrets anymore. Everyone that anonymously came forward claimed that they never knew when it happened. They just knew a few people who claimed it did, and all of a sudden one day, all the civilians were gone, and some of the sailors on board were never the same among many that disappeared or passed away that are seemingly tied to the story of the USS Eldridge, there is one like none other. One that may really connect some dots at the same time as propelling us deeper into the rabbit hole than we ever intended on going. The man who unfortunately passed away was a man by the name of James R. Wolfe. And now, we get to dive into his story. James R. Wolfe. Before I begin this section of the presentation, I would like to mention that this particular account was only brought up twice in my research. Two books, The Philadelphia Experiment Project Invisibility by William L. Moore, and briefly in The Ghost of the Philadelphia Experiment Returns by Gray Barker, are the only two sources I could find with more than a mere mention of the name James R. Wolfe. But because a lot of other sources of mine at least mention this man, it leads me to believe that this part may be something substantial. Although this is an incredible story that is sure to get your attention if you like the show. Just keep in mind that absolutely none of anything associated with the Philadelphia experiment can be hundred percent verified. James R. Wolfe was a freelance writer who was once a sailor in the US Navy with an interest in all things unknown and in this case specifically the Olande letters Wolfe was in the process of writing a book with what he claimed to be the breaking info on the case of the Philadelphia Experiment, when in 1978, just before he was ready for publishing, he went missing. Wolf had been in regular contact with William O. Moore and even assisted in some of the main points made in his book on the subject. It was in May of 1978 that a woman by the name of Shell Alberti of QFORN, the Canadian UFO Research Network, had reached out to William Moore attempting to find out about the death of James R. Wolfe. Moore didn't know that Wolf had died at the time and was saddened by the news and was unfortunately unable to lend any info into the matter. It was at this time that researcher Gray Barker had been contacted by both Moore and Alberti. It was during their continual back and forth conversations that Moore had asked her why she had an interest in Wolf and the Philadelphia experiment in the first place. Her response was quote, it came as a response to our investigation of a close encounter of the third kind here in Canada. Pause. Just in case anybody listening does not know, a close encounter of the first kind is a visual sighting of a UFO. A close encounter of the second kind is an event in which the UFO causes some sort of physical effect on you, the area you are in, or something within the area you are in. This can be paralysis, car dying, or animals acting strange, among many other things. A close encounter of the third kind is when something is witnessed in, coming out of, or being around the area of a UFO. I will cover this more in depth eventually in another episode, but for now, if you would like to know more, please look up the Heineck scale. There are a few other intermediate rankings of encounters in there as well that are um, they're nice to know. The story that Michelle Alberti was referring to was the story of a 27-year-old man by the name of Robert Suffin, a, car- a carpenter from Bracebridge, Ontario. One night, Suffin had received a call from his sister who claimed that there was a strange light coming from a nearby barn. So he drove out towards his house and investigated the barn in question. He found nothing and began the very short drive back to her house when, right in the middle of the road in front of his car, he witnessed a saucer shaped object about 12 to 14 feet long hovering just over the road. Before he knew it, the craft launched so high into the sky that it was no longer able to be seen. Suffin, Who was scared out of his mind was about to continue his drive back to his sisters when a four-foot humanoid creature with incredibly wide shoulders came out of the tree line and walked into the headlight shine in the front of his truck. The creature was wearing a silverish suit and a globe-like helmet over his head. Suffin watched as it hastily continued its run across the road, jumped a nearby fence and continued to run far off into a field well out of view. He immediately reported it to the Sun News Network, and after a long night retelling his story to his sister and anybody else that listened, he finally drove back home. To his surprise, after getting home, he looked out his window and the saucer was there again. It was coming closer and just hovering inches off the ground before it yet again shot straight up into the sky. His farmhouse became a media circus for the next few weeks as he retold his story again to anyone who would listen. Over the following weeks, after the eventful night, the farmhouse had become swamped with media personnel and curious people, but in November shortly after the events, an appointment was arranged with who they were told were quote top brass from the Canadian forces in Ottawa, the United States Air Force, the Pentagon, and the US Navy's Office of Intelligence for something for some time in December. The Suffens claims the Suffins claim was that when these men arrived, they opened up with all of their knowledge about UFOs and alien beings. Their claim was that they had been in contact with them and working with them in some sort of capacity since 1943. Suffen then went on to explain that the entire appointment was to conduct an apology to him for a mistake with a faulty alien craft. They claimed that this was never the intention. The conversation continued very civilly for hours before the men left and were never heard from again, but it was one particular thing that had Q4 interested that night. The men explained that meeting these beings was actually an accident of sorts, It had happened during a trial with technology that was supposed to make ships invisible to radar in 1943. Alright travelers, that's all I have for part one of the Philadelphia Experiment. Next time, we dive into the absolute most mind-blowing part of this entire story. In part two of our coverage of the Philadelphia Experiment, we dive into the story of Mr. Al Bielik and dip our toes into the infamous Montauk Project. I would like to thank you once again for tuning into to the Infinite Rabbit Hole Podcast. Please make sure to give the show a follow and one of those beautiful five-star ratings on your podcast player of choice. If you would like to join the conversation and stay up to date on all things Infinite Rabbit Hole, head on over to Facebook and search for the Infinite Rabbit Hole Facebook group. You know it's us when you see the logo. And if for some reason you would like to support the show, there are two ways for you to do so. First, head on over to anchor.fm forward slash infinite rabbit hole and click on the subscribe button where for $5 a month you'll get access to all of our old episodes that will never see the free spotlight ever again. It's horrible stuff, but if you're into that kind of thing, then check it out. Second, head on over to infiniterabbithole.com and click on the IRH Merch Shop tab and grab yourself a sweet t-shirt, sticker, or whatever else you see that you wouldn't mind owning. And until next time, travelers, I'm Jeremy, and I'll see you at the next fork in the path of the Infinite Rabbit Hole. Goodbye.